Senator Tommy Tuberville ended his hold on most military nominees after 10 months. How will that impact Senate business and military operations? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. Today, hundreds, hundreds of military families across the country can breathe a sigh of relief. The Senate has now unanimously confirmed hundreds of military nominations that were held up for 10 months by a single person, the senator from Alabama. And the Republican Party faces one of its biggest shifts in 70 years, as more and more conservatives scrutinize defense spending. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is December 6th, 2023. First up, the Senate voted to approve en masse more than 400 military nominations. The vote came hours after Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville announced that he would end his 10-month-long hold on most military nominees over the Pentagon's abortion access policy for troops. Tuberville said his protest achieved as much as it could, even though the Pentagon's policy remains in place. We didn't get the win that we wanted. We've still got a bad policy. We tried to stand up for the taxpayers of this country. Uh, we've got executive overreach, which I ran to be elected to vote for the people of Alabama, and I did not get to vote for the people of Alabama for this new policy that they put in the that, that they put in the military. But Tuberville is not dropping all of his holds. He intends to delay 11 four-star posts still pending in a continued protest of the abortion policy. I caught up with Military Times Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Leo Shane III on the Hill yesterday to talk about what it means for national security moving forward. So, Leo, could you give us a refresher course on what's been happening for the past 10 months with regards to this abortion access policy, Senator Tuberville's holds, and what leaders had said over the course of that time on how it's impacting military readiness? Yeah, look, this has been um, quite a quite a disaster for the Defense Department. They've got almost 450 uh, senior officer nominees who've been stalled because of Senator Tuberville's objection to the Pentagon's abortion access policies. And this has really left them in, in a pretty big lurch. There's uh, dozens and dozens of, of senior generals who haven't been able to retire. There's other ones who haven't been able to move. There's all sorts of just leadership concerns. DOD has been saying that it's not interrupting operations, but on a personal level, you know, there's a lot of family that were expecting to be in new schools this fall who had to stay put. There were a lot of other families who were who were separated because maybe their loved one had to move or was supposed to move, didn't get to move with them. So it's just been really chaotic for the entire Defense Department. Senator Tuberville has been insisting for months that he will not, uh, he would not let anything move forward until there was a change in this abortion policy. But in recent weeks, um, Republican senators and Democratic senators have really laid the pressure on him, threatened a rule change to get around him. So what we saw on Tuesday was Senator Tuberville saying, look, I think I've made my point. This protest has gone on long enough, and I'm going to release just about all of these nominees, let them move forward. So who are these 11 nominees still being held up by Tuberville? And what are lawmakers saying will be their workaround or legislative effort to break that hold. Yeah, so there's still 11 four-stars who are in the system who he says he will continue to have his hold on. Now, with just 11 folks, we're expecting the Senate will be able to sort of, 
use brute force and push these through, hold a series of votes. It may take four or five days to get through all of them just with legislative procedures. But but that's doable compared to 400 some, which would have taken six, seven months worth of floor time to get through all of them. Um, these 11 positions are pretty significant. It's a vice chiefs of the Army, vice chief of the Navy, uh, vice chief of the Air Force and the Space Force, head of Northern Command, uh, the commanders of Pacific Air Forces, pretty senior level folks, but folks that, um, you know, if, if the right subordinates are in place and if some of these other nominees are in place, you can sort of work around vacancies for a little bit. And as I said, the military has been operating with with uh, vacancies right now with interim chiefs. So um, so to go from 440 some to 11 vacancies is a real relief for the folks over at the Pentagon. But they said they still want these other folks in place. We'll know in the next few days how Senate Democrats plan to approach that. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said he was encouraged by the news but he said there is still work to be done. It's not just flicking a switch and suddenly everyone moves into these new positions. Uh, you have to consider things like um, when people can move, um, where the, the people that are moving out of the positions are going. And so all that has to be carefully orchestrated and done in a way that enables us to continue to conduct the operations uh, without having significant impact, not only on the mission, but also on the individual family members. So that'll, that will be something clearly that we'll continue to work through. As Republican presidential candidates prepare for another debate, the Republican Party has faced its most major policy shift in nearly 70 years. Brian Harris, Defense News Capitol Hill reporter, talks with us about the changing desires of Republicans with regards to defense spending. So, Brian, you've written on a trend happening within the Republican Party, and most prominently in your reporting has been the changes among lawmakers on Capitol Hill. What are the changes you've noticed and reported on regarding their views on defense spending? So this certainly isn't a brand new trend. It's relatively new. But basically what what we've seen over the past several years is kind of, kind of coming to a head this year where you have the traditional Reaganite defense orthodoxy within the Republican Party, which is, of course, peace through strength and supporting, you know, U.S. allies and partners against U.S. adversaries. We've seen since the emergence of President Donald Trump in America first that a lot of these old Reagan or Reaganite orthodoxy tenants are becoming more questionable in the Republican Party. Uh, and this year, for instance, obviously, we see President Trump is an undisputed front runner. So far, it looks like a lot of his primary challengers are having trouble dislodging him. And that means there has been a lot more pressure on the old school Reagan line of thought within the Republican Party from both members of Congress and mainstream conservative institutions. And, you know, we saw this year that kind of came to a head with the uh, defense budget. A lot of the more traditional Republican defense hawks want uh, yearly large defense plus ups every year over inflation. This year, the debt ceiling um, locked it in that Biden's proposed a defense budget request, which they were unhappy with. On top of that, the other big undercurrent here is aid to Ukraine, of course. And now we're talking about aid to Israel as well. And, you know, both of those things are kind of getting caught up in this uh, broader debate, too. Some of these lawmakers up here on Capitol Hill uh, talking in the same way about, and the, about the defense budget that we've seen progressive Democrats 
make in the past, which is pointing out things like the fact that the Pentagon has failed six consecutive audits and that our own defense budget is as large as, you know, the next however many countries combined. You know, it's worth noting, well, one, in his 2016 campaign, he was campaigning, you know, of course, against the Bush legacy of the Iraq war, which had become very unpopular among the broader American public, including Republicans. When he entered office, he, you know, first proposed traditional large Republican defense budget plus ups. But, you know, throughout his presidency, he did things like threaten to withdraw from NATO if they didn't meet the 2% of GDP contribution, tried to partially withdraw troops from Syria, which of course led to the spat with former Defense Secretary Mattis, where he called him the world's most overrated general. And, you know, looking ahead to the elections next year with him as a front runner, you, you know, you have some Republican opponents like Nikki Haley trying to champion this old school Reagan orthodoxy, but they're not making a whole lot of headway. And how does this impact military spending? to support allies and fellow democracies as lawmakers work to finalize a budget. So the first thing I would point to is, as you mentioned, the budget. This all kind of began with the debt ceiling debate earlier this year. Former Speaker McCarthy, to become Speaker for, you know, nine or ten months, he made these very competing promises to different factions within the party. Um, And a lot of it went to the promise of budget cuts to appease the fiscal hawks. And then, the, of course, the defense budget kind of got roped up in this. So there's still a 3.4% increase um, for $886 billion for based on Biden's budget proposal. However, the Republican defense hawks, like, for instance, um, you, you know, Mitch McConnell in the Senate and Roger Wickard, um, top Republican on armed services in the Senate, were unhappy with this because it was an increase below the level of inflation. And that's kind of the template they're using going forward. And of course, when the debt ceiling agreement went before the Senate floor, you had all McConnell and all these Republican defense hawks saying, we will pass a defense supplemental to increase the the defense spending top line. So that's how they got that passed. Um, But shortly after that, you had former Speaker McCarthy immediately kind of, you know, putting his foot down saying, no, we will not pass additional spending, including increased defense spending. So again, you see how kind of the America first wing... um, Uh, more fiscally hawkish wing of the party is, you know, coming out on top here over the defense hawks. And that kind of brings us to this week, actually, where right now the Senate is debating this huge $106 billion supplemental request that President Biden submitted to provide uh, aid to Ukraine, Israel, and a little bit to the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan. That's $61 billion proposed for Ukraine, economic and military aid, $14 billion for military aid to Israel. So there's a growing number of House Republicans who are, you had the original, you know, 50 or so members in the Freedom Caucus who were always opposed to Ukraine aid. But now as the war is kind of entering more of a stalemate phase, there are more House Republicans who are now opposed to Ukraine aid. And they're particularly frustrated that they haven't seen, you know, the White House clearly articulate a winning strategy. But on the other side of that, in the Senate, you've had McConnell trying to point out that a lot of this aid goes back to U.S. defense contractors and gets invested in our own industrial base. And Speaker Mike Johnson right now, the new speaker, is also insisting on um, this pretty hardline immigration bill that they want to attach to it in order to pass a Ukraine aid. And Senate Republicans are starting to take the same line. So that's kind of where they are right now. And it's raised significant issues 
as to whether Congress can pass a Ukraine aid package. And on top of that, even when the House passed a standalone Israel military aid bill based on Biden's supplemental request, Speaker Johnson decided to, uh, you know, they called it an offset, cut an equal amount from the IRS. So that that also points to even Republicans very supportive of Israel want to offset the aid we're sending them. So that again points to the rise of this kind of America first mentality in Congress as well. Also on your radar for today, are drone boats possibly the future of marine reconnaissance in the Indo-Pacific? Well, Marine Corps Times reporter Irene Lowenson has some of the answers. You tell us why is the Marine Corps trying to use drone piloted boats in the first place? Well, a big focus for the Marine Corps these days is reconnaissance, surveillance, intelligence, making sure the Marine Corps is ready to take on China, which is pretty high tech and where where those capabilities are going to be important in a potential future conflict. The Marine Corps is looking at these small drone boats that would be remotely piloted from either a larger vessel or from shore. And the idea is, as with a lot of unmanned technology, prevents the service members from actually, you know, being in harm's way, but uh, allows these systems to do all kinds of things. So in this case, the Marine Corps is looking at small boats that would be able to spy, essentially, on other vessels. And so what's the time frame for acquiring this capability? Well, there isn't an exact timeline because what we know about these these vessels is from a request for information by Marine Corps Systems Command. So that's essentially market research. They're not committing themselves to buying anything, but the idea is they learn more about what industry is capable of and maybe signal their interest in acquiring this technology And then that lays the groundwork for future acquisition. The request for information did mention that it is seeking non-developmental solutions or basically items that have already been developed and maybe in use elsewhere in the government. These boats would be pretty small, like light enough to be lifted by one of the heavy lift helicopters or tugged by a light tactical vehicle and small enough to fit into a C-130 transport aircraft. Not a huge platform, ideally, in the Marine Corps' view, equipped with various different kinds of sensors that could enable intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance missions, especially in the littorals, which is the Pentagon term for areas close to shore. Fighting in the littorals is a big focus for the Marine Corps as it's shifting more toward amphibious operations after two decades of land wars in the Middle East. And now here's some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. The Navy will soon begin search and salvage operations for an Army MH-60 Blackhawk helicopter that crashed in the Mediterranean on November 10th. All five Special Operations soldiers on board the helicopter died. Bloomberg reported that the Navy plans to deploy anti-ship missiles on subs in 2024 to counter China. This week, Veterans Affairs leaders acknowledged more than 120,000 veterans who attempted to use department online platforms to file for benefits in recent years were stonewalled by technical problems. That's nearly 35% more than previously reported. And authorities said at least 85 people have been confirmed dead after a mistaken Nigerian army drone attacked in Nigeria. The country's president ordered a probe yesterday into the latest in a series of mistakes in Nigeria's conflict zones. 
and on this day in history in 1865, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, officially ending the institution of slavery, was ratified. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Leo Shane III, Brian Harris, and Irene Lowenson. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Roos. Have a great day.